Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. This is the Monday edition of the Morning Wake Up Call where we are talking Long Island life, national news, international issues. Danny, Lindsay, Bruno, Hannah, and later in the show, Mikey in our first hour. Why Kamala Harris has Democrats nervous. Everything about the Chinese spy balloon and interviews about junk fees and what Congress is saying about socialism. You don't want to miss it. Alright guys, good morning. I think all your mics are right because you kind of shuffled the order a little bit, but how are you doing today on this on this not as cold as I might have thought Monday morning? We'll start with Lindsay who's never been here this early before. Yeah, today's my first time waking up uh, this early for a morning wake-up call, but we're here, we made it, we're ready to talk, so I may be sleepy, but I'm ready to go. Yeah, and for future reference, the front door to the building is always open. Yeah, although I found out my sweat access doesn't work this way, so I guess that's oh. good for me. It's okay. You're here now. Bruno, how are you? Doing well. Never heard of those swift access actually working on this building. I think that's just a staff thing, so <laughs> I don't know what happens. Yeah, it, it is what it is, man. And uh, Hannah, how are you? I'm doing good. I flew back from Minnesota last night, so I am a little tired, but happy to be here. Yeah, I heard you're out of, yeah, you're out of town. What did you go do when you flew back? Um, my small town I live next to had a dog sledding race that my sister, mom, and I went to. And then I also went to Dancing with the Stars Live, which wow. was magical, to be completely honest. That's awesome. Well, Hannah, we're not going to leave you just yet because we have a weather report. Because obviously we know the weekend was cold, but everyone is just dying to know about today. So what's the weather like? It is currently 35 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra, and up in the sky it is pretty cloudy, but the sun should start to peak out as the day goes on, with an expected high of 49 degrees during the day and a low of 28 degrees in the evening. Thank you. You know, it was so cold this weekend, and I, th- I think this is a this is unfortunately already a common refrain, but guys, it was frigid on Saturday. Am I the, am I, am I crazy? You're not crazy. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, I did actually step outside one time without my jacket on. I don't know how I lived, but we made it. I had to march through the streets of New York City in five-degree weather to walk back to my train at Penn Station. Oh, okay. I was like, why is Danny marching in the city? Marching in the streets. (laughs) It was bad. Well, I, because I have work early, got there at a cool 4 a.m., but I took an Uber. But on the way home 
to the Penn Station. I was like, all right, I'm just, I'm just going to walk. I'm going to deal with it. I almost stopped in a store just to warm my face back up, but it just it wasn't worth it. Uh, but this weekend was a very busy news weekend. Of course, we're going to get to a lot of it during the show. But we have a few headlines that it would be more than prudent to just go through right now. And I'll take these because, man, they're a bit of a doozy. And I, I got to say... For a slow news weekend, it was a pretty heavy news weekend. Because typically the, the weekends are not that big with news. It seems like the world shuts down a little bit. But not this weekend. Here's what's been going on. So the Democratic National Committee overwhelmingly approved a new calendar for their presidential primaries in an effort to amplify black voices within the party. We will move to a vote on the motion to approve the report of the Rules and Bylaws Committee. All those in favor of approving the report say aye. Starting in 2024, South Carolina will go first, followed by Nevada, New Hampshire, Georgia, and Michigan. Iowa, to use a technical term, got the boot. Four in ten Americans say they're worse off financially since Joe Biden took office, according to a new ABC News Washington Post poll. Given record high inflation, it's not a shock, but that number is the highest number reported in the poll in 37 years. Come on, man. And now the American for Prosperity group backed by powerful billionaire Charles Koch is said to oppose former President Donald Trump in the 2024 Republican prim presidential primary due to the network's coffers and ability to coalesce around another candidate. This is probably one of the largest dominoes to fall that would block the former president's quest to return to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But the next domino to fall in the primary for the Republicans might be moderate New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Appearing on ABC this weekend, the longtime Trump critic wasn't shy about saying he's been giving it thought, but he's also saying that others may jump in as well. Definitely thinking about it, having those conversations, but at the end of the day, you can have a lot of Republicans that get in that race. They're all really good people. They're really good candidates. You have Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and Governor DeSantis, and a lot of folks are going to get in. And finally, to divert quickly from American politics, over 1,500 people were killed and thousands more injured after a 7.8 magnitude earthquake stuck, struck Turkey and Syria. This quake was so strong, it could be felt as far as Cairo in Egypt. What you're about to hear is the sound of rescuers in Diyarbakir, Turkey. In the aftermath, 45 nations have offered assistance following the disaster. So that is your quick little tour around American politics and the world. That earthquake struck pre-drawn. It was very early for us, and you just hope that everything could be uh, okay over there soon it was 7.8 that is a very very strong earthquake and the fact that you can feel it as far as egypt which where it struck in upper syria lower turkey very far from there uh so that that is that isn't that is almost remarkable how strong that quake was um but we're going to be moving on here on the when wake up call to our first story we have Plenty to get to in our first block, our national politics block. Two interviews in the 30 minutes, but we got to get going. And we're going to start with someone we didn't mention in those headlines, Kamala Harris. And guys, I want to talk about Kamala Harris because there were some rumbles late last week into the weekend about how her tenure as vice president, we're going into the two-year mark of the Biden presidency. And Biden set to give his State of the Union on Tuesday. And it turns of... 
in terms of wow, California girls that started early. I was going to play that as we got out of the out of the segment. But the current vice president from California, a senator from California, uh, her tenure has been underwhelming in the eyes of some commentators. Uh, Cleve Woodson from the Washington Post writes this quote: "Concerns about Harris's political strength were reported often by more than a dozen Democratic leaders in key states." And some speaking on the condition of anonymity, Harris's tenure has been underwhelming, they said, marked by struggles as a communicator and at times near invisibility, leaving many rank and file Democrats unpersuaded that she has the force, charisma and skill to mount a winning presidential campaign. Now, obviously, the speculation there would be that Biden doesn't run in 24 and she would step up. But, you know, there's a lot of doubt that if that event occurred, she would immediately, immediately lock up the nomination and prevent a messy primary. Uh, and remember, she failed to generate a lot of buzz when she ran in 2020 before becoming vice president. And speaking of that, here's NPR's uh, Christine Rosen on the same subject. Quote, Harris's seemingly perfect identity politics resume is perhaps the main reason she has proven to be unsuited to the task. Having risen to power in deep blue California, as I mentioned earlier, she has rarely been seriously criticized or forced to defend herself to voters and colleagues weren't already on her side. As a result, she has never had to develop the charisma, persuasiveness, and eloquence of a successful politician. There's that word charisma again. She was chosen as VP only after Biden had dramatically narrowed his criteria by declaring he would choose a woman of color for the position. Now, before I turn it over to you guys, I do want to say that obviously you can't fault Biden for making the choice. He won the election. You can never, you can never fault a winner. Whatever happened in, in 2020, it just worked down Biden's favor and he was able to make it to the White House. But in terms of what Harris has done in the second top job, I'm going to start with you, Lindsay. What do you think about her tenure so far? I, I, I agree. It's been entirely underwhelming. Um, you know, I think she had kind of a better outlook when it was 2020. Um, but she's always kind of seemed like that politician that doesn't quite have a grasp on how the world works outside of California and that actually might be a little harsh it's coming out of my mouth um but one of the things that stood out to me in this article was something that Christine Rosen said where she Kamala Harris rose to power in deep blue California um and she didn't really have to face any criticism from people who were already on her side and she didn't really have to defend her choices to her voters because they all were pretty much her supporters so the fact that she didn't really have to go through I guess the gauntlet that most uh, politicians have to go through didn't prepare her for becoming what the second seat in America's government yeah Um, she doesn't have again that charisma the eloquence the the kind of she's not she's not relatable she's not somebody who can be a national figure she's she kind of reminds you of the aunt that tries to be the cool aunt but actually <laughs> is not the cool aunt yeah and like just she's a cool aunt like to that. some members of the family but not everyone yeah, yeah it's i don't i don't think she's gonna have a very successful political future if she does decide to run in 2024 um and i think it's gonna be a maybe messy year for the democrats yeah what's up bruno what do you got i'd say that um, yeah, she's got a good political tenure so far, and but as you said, it's kind of underwhelming. And in politics, it's all about the splash that you're leaving behind. You can't just be kind of one more of the bunch. And if you're just one more of the bunch, one, that doesn't give you that much backing in, in any party, be it GOP or the Democrats. Secondly, if she, you're not making that much of a splash in, in the public or are not relatable, like Lindsay is coming to say, 
why would the voters vote for you? You're not exactly leaving any impression. You're just another uh, career politician, which is something that a lot of people are tired of. They want someone they can relate to a lot easier. If I was in the Democratic Party, I would actually be thinking more of someone like Nancy Pelosi, as she has a much more of a national Pro, figure stance. Yeah, Speaker, Speaker of the House. It's a yeah. big, that's a big office. Yeah, or something like that, because as you said, she was picked by Biden. And that doesn't exactly scream popularity. It screams more like, you know, that's what he wanted, and that's what he thought would be best for the job. Yeah. It's an appointment, not, yeah. a, not an election. So I want you guys. What do you guys think? Does she have like the popularity with the people to even? Oh no, get no, the not at all, man. No, no, way. no, no way. And I think <laughs> here's the thing, and this is the last point because we got to get to an interview. When you look at prospective presidential candidates, governors are way more qualified to be president than a senator. Because as a governor, you are the chief executive of your state. You have to win statewide office. And sure, a state isn't exactly a microcosm of America, but you're still somebody who's occupying the top job. If you're a senator, you're representing essentially a regional interest in the country. So that's the main issue. Uh, and Kamala Harris, a senator from California, someone who's insulated in that blue state. If she was the governor of California, probably a different tune. But, you know, Gavin Newsom... Even still, as governor, he's struggling to break free of that, uh, you know, true blue liberal mold. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of candidates come to the fore. I think that's why Ron DeSantis is such an attractive candidate for the Republicans, because he's already a governor of a state that, despite shifting to the red more recently, it's still very much a microcosm of the United States population-wise, demographic-wise, diversity-wise. So it's going to be interesting to see what that happens with that. But when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the Biden administration, specifically about an issue I think there's many that many people in our generation are very concerned about, and that's junk fees, especially when you go to concerts. But as I alluded to, we will be played out of this segment by California Girls, by the Beach Boys, because what better song to play out to when we're talking about a former California senator? You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM WRHU.
right, California Girls by the Beach Boys. You are listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. This is the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. And we talked a little about a little bit about Kamala Harris, but now we're going to talk about uh, the guy in the top job, Joe Biden. So as part of his competition agenda, his administration is looking to crack down on so-called junk fees. What would this look like and what would it mean for the economy? Obviously, this came to the fore after the whole Taylor Swift Ticketmaster fiasco. But a lot of these junk fees exist in other areas of the economy, such as most notably credit cards. Uh, joining us live over Zoom to talk about these questions and more is USA, politics, USA Today politics reporter Sarah Elbish-Bishi. Sarah, welcome to the Morning Wake Up Call. Hi, Danny. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited to be here with you as well. So I guess the main question we have is how would the Biden administration, how would the Biden administration move to address these excessive junk fees? So essentially, President Joe Biden tasked federal agencies with finding ways to reduce and eliminate junk fees last fall. Um, and so in part, um, agencies are trying to figure out what they can do to to um, target these fees, specifically the excessive t- credit fees. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau found a way that they can cap most credit card late fees at $8 um, for a missed payment. Um, and so the director of the CFPB um, said that they found a legal loophole that credit card companies usually have and have been exploiting in order to charge those additional billions of dollars um, in late fees. And so because of bipartisan letters, legislation in 20, sorry, 2009, um, it gives the Bureau the ability to curb those excessive credit card fees, um, late fees. Um, and so they've now proposed a change, submitted a proposed change for review um, this month. And it's not likely to take place until 24, uh, 2024, um, but they are working to cap that those fees. Hi, Sarah, this is Lindsay talking. Um, now, what you mentioned one type of the credit fees. Now, what are the other fees that are being highlighted by the administration? Yeah. So um, in addition to that announcement that, you know, the CFPB is um, working to propose legislation or propose a rule to change that, um, the administration also um, highlighted four um, specific types of junk fees, which they referred to. Um, you know, so one of them has been in the news frequently after the whole ticket master Taylor Swift fiasco. Um, so excessive online ticket fees, referring to what they call massive service fees added to the cost of online concert tickets, um, sporting events, other entertainment tickets. The other thing that they've outlined is banning additional airline fees, especially for families with young children. So a lot of times, and what that means is a lot of times airlines charge consumers extra now to pick specific seats and um, to make sure that they sit together. And so oftentimes that leaves a burden on families, especially with younger children, because they're either at risk with not for not finding seats to sit with their kids, or they have to shell out additional money on top of their ticket um, in order to make sure that they're all sitting together. Um, the other one is um, termination fees from uh, TV, phone, and internet companies. So, you know, those are oftentimes whenever, you know, these are contractual obligations with these um, uh, providers. And oftentimes you have to um, pay an extra additional fee if you want to get out of it or cancel it earlier than what your contract says. So they 
they just want to get rid of that so that people can pivot and choose different providers without having to bear that extra cost. And then finally, um, they outlined resort and destination fees, essentially. And so they just want charges that will be added to hotels or resort like type um, venues um, to include the additional fees and the price upfront um, and be required for that uh, to to include those additional fees and advertised costs of the room um, or, you know, um, stay or something so that people aren't waiting until the last minute to um, pay and then find out that they have additional hundreds of dollars in fees. And Ms. LBHBC, if the federal government does remove the junk fees, how much could the average American save yearly? So... I'm not um, entirely sure specifically what that would break down to per family. Um, The White House does project that um, the CFPB rule, uh, proposed rule, would reduce usual late fees from $30 to $8, which would save Americans as much as $9 billion in late fees. Um, And then the White House has also estimated that those four specific junk fees I just mentioned would um, are currently costing Americans billions of dollars a year. So um, it kind of breaks down to a couple hundred dollars um, for consumers and average Americans monthly um, when you're taking um, account for all of those different fees. There's not specific, you know, um, numbers yet, just because this is again theoretical, um, but. It, it could look like a significant amount. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining us this morning to talk about this issue. Uh, we really appreciate it. No, of course. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You as well. And so that talked about what the Biden administration is looking to do. So now we're going to move forward and we're going to look at what Congress has been up to. And it's not necessarily passing laws as much as it is passing a resolution. And last week, the Republican-led House of Representatives uh, passed a resolution condemning socialist ideology and it divided the Democratic Party. 109 of the 212 Democrats in the House voted with all Republicans to support it. And to break down what this necessarily means this early in the term, we are now joined by the New Republic's uh, writer, Prem Thacker. Uh, Prem, did I get that right? I'm so sorry. I, uh, the, the phone was a little scratchy when you told me. <laughs> You're good. It's Tucker, but it's totally okay. All right. Well, welcome to the Winnie Wake Up Call, Prem. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. So the article you wrote for the New Republic, you called this legislative exercise a, quote, charade, a waste of time and money, and a farce. Why do you feel that way? Yeah. So before we get into perhaps why this question matters in a more intellectual sense, it's important to talk about it just in a practical sense. So as I try to just record in the piece, a certain level of offensiveness of vulgarity, I think, to the small group of people in this country who we vote for, who we pay, who we actively or passively observe for years as they serve in Congress, as they work to supposedly advocate for things that are supposed to help make people's lives better. I think there's an offensiveness to charades like this, where there's not necessarily direct policy being implicated or debated. It just kind of feels like this pot-stirring question that takes hours on the floor for debate and and back and forth. And so what I think is interesting and I think worth noting, you know, as you point to how there was 109 odd Democrats that voted for this, is that this is a good example where 
when you analyze politics, a sort of both sides approach isn't always, I think, adequate. So here, you know, as I kind of describe in the piece, um, or at least I posit, um, it's kind of this hollow preposition that Republicans are, are peddling here, um, where there's a lot of hand-wavy talking points. There was one member who I think literally concluded their remarks on the floor by saying, like, in conclusion, socialism bad, capitalism good. And then you had, you know, among the 100 or so Democrats who also voted in support of the resolution, among them members who were just sort of posturing themselves as kind of capital R reasonable politicians who would say things like, I'm fine to denounce socialism. Now let's do the people's work. And then among the 80 or so who voted no, there's this sort of mixed bag of members who some said, you know, this is dumb. I'm not going to entertain a vote like this, which is, you know, fine enough. And a sort of smaller amount who were, I think, bold enough to say, well, do you think X, Y, or Z instances of an active sort of caring government is bad? Because those instances, those moments of government spending or government activity could be construed as socialism too. So I think this is on its face sort of example of government not doing work for the people. But secondarily, I think a good example of where seeing politics as just two sides might be a little inadequate to see the deeper sort of pockets of ideologies and ways of looking at politics within Congress. Now, what do you make of the 94-member New Democrat Coalition supporting this measure? Yeah, so again, I think there's different motivations within members when they're making these decisions. I think, you know, my mindset as a reporter and a writer and even just someone who's interested in how politicians are hopefully helping people is I try to separate the buckets of members of Congress from just people like readers, voters, residents of this country, people like, you know, you and I who are just watching this all play out. And I think when I think of members of Congress's motivation, I think both Republicans and the new Democrats are kind of playing to sort of superficial, amorphous, kind of hollow impulses and reactions within people like us that have been and continue to be instilled in people in America. So namely what I'm talking about, of course, is the way socialism is treated, which is, of course, as the, you know, scare quote, S word. And so as I kind of try to gesture again towards in the the piece is that this treatment of socialism, I think, is just a little unhelpful. And I think, you know, why is it unhelpful? I think it's helpful because it's a lot of hand-waving, and I think it treats us voters, residents, with a sort of level of disrespect. It treats us as, I think, dumber than we deserve to be dignified as. And I think oftentimes it works because our media and even educational systems sort of reiterate and reaffirm this lazy hand-waving. So for one, I think a lot of, you know, generic mainstream political coverage often operates on this premise that, you know, oh, moderates or independent voters are scared away by the word socialism. And so coalitions like the New Democratic Coalition either participate in that sort of 
viewpoint of socialism, either because they earnestly believe it, which is, you know, good and fine. You can have your beliefs or because they're kind of participating in this broader media structure that we all are participating in. And so they either come to believe it or they know that our structures convince people to believe that they kind of perpetuate this sort of hand waving treatment of socialism. And I think to me, that seems a little lazy, a little uninteresting for one independence and moderates as, as in voters in this country and study after study are not sort of in some mythical political middle, even though they're often treated as such. In other words, you know, though people's politics are often complicated and not creamy aligned with one another, people still tend to have a general party preference when they go to the booth. Um, so I think, and I have much more to say, but I want to make sure you guys have room to jump in here. But I think no, no, you're good. <laughs> this coalition is just kind of participating in what I sort of describe as a farce that I think either intentionally just, you know, wants to prop up capitalism and without necessarily engaging with other systems of politics or just kind of operates in a sense that doesn't give people the justice they deserve of being able to, you know, be the way that politics should be treated with a sense of complication and that there's no black and white and it's not simply socialism bad, capitalism good. And very quickly, taking into consideration that there are some prominent democratic socialists in the U.S., but not enough to actually guide the Democratic Party in that direction, is socialism really an ideology that has legs to stand on from a policy perspective in America? That's a great question. I think there's two legs to that question. One is just bareface the popularity of it or, or the practicality of it, as I think you're kind of pointing to. And I think one thing to think of is that if the House had voted on a resolution like this, even 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you might not have had 80-plus people and another, I think, 10 or 14 Democrats who voted present, but, you know, some 80 to 100 members of the House just refusing to denounce it. I think that's pretty darn significant, particularly, again, in a country where, whether it's the media, educational institutions, Heck, even if you Google right now, I'd imagine like socialism versus capitalism, you'd probably get a bunch of links from like, I don't know, like finance YouTube channels or like Investopedia or something that just kind of implicitly or explicitly talk about socialism in negative terms and capitalism in generically positive terms. And so I think to have that level of congressional support just internally or at least refusal to just outright denounce it, I think is significant. Also, you know, lest we forget Bernie Sanders, his immense popularity is not, you know, something to just hand wave away. I mean, although he is not someone who didn't fully win and become president, um, there's a moment there, especially in 2020, that had a few things going the other way, had the party not, you know, fully aligned itself behind Joe Biden when it needed to, Bernie Sanders was on his way to the nomination and possibly the White House. So 
I think just in terms of fair popularity, there's a lot of popularity there. I think in terms of just actual policy, there's a lot more socialism in this country that I think we give credit for, whether it's, you know, things like even simple things like grocery store co-ops to things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. The idea of people pooling together to build something that takes care of everyone, it's an idea that's in a lot of places. Even in my home state of North Dakota, a very reliably red state, it's a beacon of socialist history. It has one of the only state-owned banks and state-owned mills in the country that I think both were founded in the early 1900s with motivations founded by populists to help farmers and local um, workers get out of, like sort of depending on out-of-state corporations and out-of-state capitalists in the big cities, big grain, railroad, and banking interests. So there's a lot of socialist history and a lot of socialist motivated institutions all around us. And so that's why I think this debate deserves much more richness and nuance than a lazy kind of hand-wavy resolution on the floor of Congress that also doesn't do any policy implications or have any policy implications for, for people. Certainly a lot to think about. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know it's early, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. Absolutely. Take care, guys. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Cheers. All right, guys. So we are 33 past the hour, 88.7 FM, WRHU, Danny, Lindsay, Bruno, Hannah, and later in the show, Mikey. And uh, we actually have some breaking news before we get to our top story, the international block. Lindsay, what's uh, what happened? It happened in Buffalo. A 3.8 magnitude earthquake was reported in western New York, about several miles southeast of Buffalo in West Seneca. It originally happened around 6.15 a.m. and was reported as a 4.2 magnitude earthquake by Earthquake Canada, uh, but was reduced to a 3.8 magnitude later on. And there have been no immediate reports of damage, so we're just waiting to see what the fallouts of this are. Yeah, well, uh, obviously, hope everyone's okay. Um, If it was... It sounds like it went a little bit under the radar from yeah. how we found out now or, or how it started. When was it reported in the news, like as it happened or 30 minutes after? Earthquake Canada posted about it at 6.43 a.m. And uh, <laughs> West Seneca Police Department uh, tweeted or posted on their Facebook, well, good morning, everyone. Just your usual Buffalo morning earthquake. Back to bed. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it sounds like they're in good spirits. They, they sound like they're in good spirits. Those in Buffalo, the people of Buffalo. Well, that's that's a relief. Obviously, hope everything else is okay. Um, we got, we're no stranger to earthquakes today, apparently. Um, Bruno, do you have any any two cents on what happened in Buffalo? Well, honestly, considering that I'm coming from Mexico, where there's a lot of <laughs> earthquakes, sometimes it's as long as it's not too hard, it's just Tuesday. Yeah, definitely. Well. Thank you, Lindsay, for that breaking news update. And uh, now it's, I think it's the moment uh, we've all been waiting for, uh, not to quote The Greatest Showman, but uh, the biggest political story in the United States has been the Chinese spy balloon. And to break it down, we're going to turn to our international expert, Bruno. So please, we have plenty of sound. We have plenty to talk about with this balloon. We have the rest of the hour to really discuss it. So let's go, Bruno. Let's go. Well, as I say, another day, another day talking about China. So first, this is the biggest political story in the United States has been in a big while. I'd say at least 20 years. 
20 and years. <laughs> it was actually this little spy balloon was spotted Friday afternoon where Brigadier General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon spokesman, confirmed that the balloon was a surveillance craft that had no place in U.S. airspace. We know that it's a surveillance balloon, uh, and I'm not going to be able to be more specific than that. Uh, we do know that the balloon has violated U.S. airspace and international law, uh, which is unacceptable. China acknowledged that the balloon said it was a meteorological research vessel that was blown off course by a gust of wind. But the damage was already done as Anthony Blinken canceled his planned visit to China to smooth over relations. According to the White House Press Secretary, Karen Jean-Pierre, President Joe Biden was on board with scrapping the visit. I can say as it relates to uh, uh, Lincoln's trip, uh, the president agrees with the secretary, uh, secretary's decision to not uh, go uh, to uh, go on this trip. And uh, it was a consensus that that it was not appropriate to travel to the People's Republic of China at this time. Yesterday, the balloon was fortunately shot down, but not until it was hovering over the Atlantic Ocean. It is not looking like a balloon anymore. It's falling and the jet's going around on the left-hand corner. China has condemned the act and even put in a vague threat, claiming that it still reserves the right to take certain interests in the action that the U.S. took. But there has also emerged a huge political spat over how the incident was handled and where to go from here. On the Republican side, many are quick to criticize the perceived inaction, especially after reports emerged that Biden was briefed about the balloon long before it was even spotted. Republican representative from Ohio Mike Turner, who sits in the House of Intelligence Committee, said flat out that Biden waited too long to act. Clearly the president taking it down over the Atlantic is sort of like the quarterback, sort of like tackling the quarterback after the game is over. Um, the, the satellite had completed its mission. This should never have been allowed uh, to enter the United States, and it never should have been allowed to complete its mission. Other Republicans, such as Florida Senator Marco Rubio, vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, went further and claimed that the spy balloon not only was a, an affront to U.S. sovereignty, but a demonstration of how China sees the U.S. as a weakening power. This is not a coincidence that this thing traversed the United States over sensitive military sites leading up to Blinken's what was scheduled to be his visit to China. This is deliberate. They did this on purpose. They understood that it was going to be spotted. They knew the U.S. government would have to reveal it. The people were going to see it over the sky. And the message they were trying to send is uh, what they believe internally, and that is that the United States is a once great superpower that's hollowed out, that's in decline. And the message they're trying to send the world is, look, these guys can't even do anything about a balloon flying over U.S. airspace. How can you possibly count on them if, if something were to happen in the Indo-Pacific region? On the Democratic side, the president had a few defenders within his own administration. Transportation Secretary Pete Boot, Edge Edge, told CNN, CNN's Jake Trapper, that the situation was handled with the correct abundance of caution, especially given the size of the debris that would fall. As the U.S. has communicated, it's not acceptable at all that uh, China sent this uh, object into our airspace. But in terms of how to handle it, that's something that was done based on assessment of the risks, making sure that uh, uh, there was uh, no uh, uh, risk that outweighed uh, the risks in terms of uh, any damage that would come. And it was uh, handled appropriately. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer from right here in New York also spoke on the incident, bringing up reports from the Pentagon that similar craft had inhabited U.S. airspace during the Trump administration. At least three of these balloons that we know of went over portions of the U.S. mainland during the Trump presidency. 
over parts of Texas, Hawaii, and Florida. And I will say this. The Biden administration is considering other action against China for their brazen activities. Many Trump officials, though, have disputed such claims. As the U.S. investigates the wreckage and lawmakers on Capitol Hill wait to brief, be briefed on what happened, a second balloon has been spotted flying over Costa Rica, raising, raising suspicions on how many more there could possibly be. So this is a heavy story. Yeah, and I want to. Yeah, and I want to give you the first, uh, the first crack at it, Bruno. What do you, what do you, what you, what were you thinking about this whole saga that started on Friday, and you know it's still really bleeding over into today? What are your thoughts? You have the floor. My biggest thought right now is two things. One, we really should have shot this down before, obviously carefully, not to damage anyone. But I don't know if that thing could transmit. That will only be shown as you know we we find out what's in the wreckage, and secondly. I did mention before that China did kind of implicitly put a threat that they would take actions on what we and what the U.S. did, and that it is a affront against international customs. So, how could you guys interpret that if you were in the presidency right now? Well, uh, Lindsay, you can go first. Well, I would interpret that as you know, I, I would interpret it as kind of a threat because why are they? My first question was why balloons. <laughs> Because balloons sound like such... Like a Willy Wonka type thing. <laughs> I, I feel like there are more technological advances than balloons. But then I was thinking as, as Bruno was going on with the story, it's kind of more of an inconspicuous thing. Because when you see a balloon flying in the air, you're not always like, hmm, it's a spy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... Very interesting because they could say that it was a weather balloon that came off track, which is what they did. Um, of course, they would say that. Of course, but you know, one I guess making its way over isn't, you know, a huge cause for concern. But since there's been more that have uh, reportedly came through during the Trump era, uh, which is weird, I feel like we didn't hear about that. Um, I don't think we did. No. I don't. I don't believe we heard about that. But I. I feel like we would have because this one I first heard about on social media. People noticed it on social media and were like, what is this? Yeah. Um, but then again, it's a balloon. And it's really not conspicuous. So anyone seeing it, if they're not reporting that it's a Chinese spy balloon, it's not going to notice it. Um, but, you know, back to the weather balloon. One going off track, I guess you could understand. One also maybe going over Costa Rica. Interesting. Um but it's it's interesting to see China's reaction to this as well um, and why they are upset that we have, you know, taking control of our own airspace. Well, here's what I'll say really quickly, and I'll go back to you, Bruno. I've seen a lot of people, you know, it takes a long time to graduate from military school, get into the military, but apparently everyone has become a general overnight. I think it's hilarious how so many people were like, shoot it down, shoot it down, shoot it down. First of all, we know it's a spy balloon. There's no getting around that. Ryder said it. Lloyd Austin said it. Of course, China's going to deny it, but what else would it be? The criticisms that speak loudest to me, though, are the fact that this balloon was detected on January 28th over Alaska. And I understand you don't want to hurt Americans with the debris, like uh, Buttigieg said, but at the end of the day, there has to be a sense of urgency it's, it's one of those catch-22 things. Either you bring it up quickly and you get the hawks 
urging you to take action and it's potentially unsafe or you don't bring it up, you risk it being detected while it's over the middle of Montana and now everyone looks at Biden and says, well, why didn't you say anything sooner? I do think Representative Turner is correct that by the time it was shot down, its mission was it was done. Like it was at that point, it was expendable. Uh, but I will heed him on. I will stop him on one point. Um, sure, it's it's a show of what China could do. They can put a balloon in airspace, and Marco Rubio said on the same interview that we played a clip from that if we put a balloon over China, they would shoot it down immediately. I think that just speaks to our different views of international law and international relations because no one wants to be the provocateur you know except but china clearly is the one who is poking here we would never do that in in, in the same way in the same blatant way because the media would be very on top of it versus in china they probably didn't even talk about it not saying that we don't have the capability and not saying we haven't done anything like this in the past Having things in other countries' airspace is nothing new. But this incident, so out in the open, that's something that I don't think the United States, at this particular juncture with their attempts to improve relations with China, would never have done in this context. I think China is you know, a, sort of a pariah on the international stage in that sense. Bruno, you had your hand up. I don't want to ignore it for too much longer. So my biggest concern on this is that, as you mentioned, the Hawks did want to take it down quickly is that now that we have the wreckage, one, we can definitely prove to international community that it was a spy balloon, because of course they're going to deny it to the very end until, well, the evidence is put in their face, and even then they will still do it. So taking that into consideration, and that there's also one in Costa Rica very close to the strategic Panama Canal. What can the U.S. do about this internationally? Will there be any action to try at least condemn China? What do you guys think? I think no. Mm-mm. I think there will be, you know, the the common rhetoric of this was a violation of international law and it's at the front of U.S. sovereignty. I think they're going to be all over that. I think that there was, a, I think Bruno, honestly, the harshest words have already been spoken in phone calls between diplomats. That's probably already been the crux of the condemnation. Hannah, did you have something to add here? Yeah, I just had kind of an odd question, but let's just say in some world it was. A weather balloon, what would we do with it? Not get rid of it? Just let it go? Well, it's still, it would raise a lot of questions, but and it's, it's, it's a hard hypothetical to answer because we knew the answer so quickly of what it actually was. Right, but if like they want us to think it's actually a weather balloon. Well, if we believed it, then I would actually agree with Marco Rubio that we're a declining world power, uh, but... We, it's of course they would say it's a weather balloon. That's the thing. It, like, what right. else are they gonna like? What else that big? What are they? Is there like a hot air balloon race going on that we don't know about? It's <laughs> so. No, I I understand your point though. That you know, what if it was just a weather balloon and we're all overreacting? But it's at this point, I think that the, the cat's out of the bag. And I, I I agree with Bruno. I am very interested to see what the Navy actually gets their hands on when they examine examine the wreckage. Uh, Lindsay, you had something to say. I'm. I mean. You you mentioned the hot air balloon race, and I was going to say, you don't really take into aspect how big the actual balloon is when you see it floating up in the sky, but now that I'm looking back at the picture of the plane next to the balloon, they're about the same size, 
Yes. Uh, <laughs> Although the balloon, as I was, I, I listened to that full interview uh, that Jake Tapper did with uh, Buttigieg, and he said that it was above where planes fly. It was above that altitude, so wow. it didn't actually it didn't actually interfere with commercial airspace, but it did interfere with airspace in general. So yeah, it's a plane-sized object, not at a plane altitude. It's a, it's a large balloon if you really take it's a, into it's consideration. A big yeah. So that's quite interesting yeah and i think and here's the thing you know what i'm really taken aback by i was like oh we heard about this balloon but people i think our age and our generation are not really giving this a lot of thought no i don't know what that says about gen z's interest in foreign policy i mean this is also the generation who is obsessed with the chinese app tiktok um so there's that as well. Yeah. In you fact, had to bring in, that up. They, the SNL cold open it was so funny. And um, Keenan Thompson played a general on the opening and he goes, it's okay. We don't need to worry about this balloon. All the young people, uh, I mean, I'm sorry. China already has everything they need from TikTok. And I thought that was very cheeky, but also very, 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 a good instance of almost dark humor. <laughs> I mean, if we're keeping it lighthearted, my favorite reaction to the balloon was from Mark Hamill, who played Luke Skywalker in the uh, Star Wars series, where he posted a picture of the balloon with the quotes, that's no balloon, it's a space station. Uh, so call back to those who watch Star Wars, where yes. they're pulling up on the Death Star, that's no moon, it's a space station. Yes, but the dichotomy, <laughs> and I think, Bruno, you're going to get into this when I go back to you, it's going to be it's so striking that... Some people are think see this is a joke. What, Lindsay? There was a comment I just read on Mark Hamill's post where someone commented, we're about to make it look like Alderaan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> man, Star Wars references, man. People are making jokes about it. But see, this. that's the contrast. There are so many people making jokes about a balloon because in some respects it's like, okay, they send over a balloon, come on, give me a break. But then there are some people, especially in the political scene, those who are attuned to foreign policy, who are like, this is this is a diplomatic crisis, this is something that we need to really worry about, this is a, this is a real show of, I don't want to say force, but show of authority on behalf of China and Beijing. So there's, it feels like there's almost two different Americas reacting to this. Bruno, what do you have to say about that? That is actually a very good point, because have you ever heard any quotes from uh, World War One? Yeah, I read um, yeah. I read that one book about Pershing's campaign in France, so I've 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 followed it a little bit. Well, there was this letter from one of the soldiers, and he was saying, "It is the masters have a quarrel, i.e., the leaders, and it's us who have respect to make war." And I'd say that kind of illustrates a little bit what you're saying about Gen Z having no interest in this because they see it as something that the government does, something that the president does. It doesn't apply to me. It's just kind of, you know, another thing in a world that, let's be honest, our generation has become very cynical, especially. With or not or reason. not even cynical, just, you know, completely apathetic because yeah. we're not in, a lot of people in our generation aren't interested in the delicate balancing act of foreign relations. I mean, when Ukraine was invaded, obviously it was support Ukraine, but it wasn't it, it wasn't out of a. I'm I'm sure there weren't that many people, especially in high school, who were like, "Well, you know, we gotta we gotta honor our NATO commitments, but not also get too involved, or else, you know, Russia will declare war on all of NATO." Like, there, there's no there's no deeper level analysis than that. It's a very simplistic view of the world because honestly, it's difficult to really gauge foreign policy if you're not well versed in it. It takes a lot of education. So I think this knee jerk comedic reaction is almost a coping mechanism for how much people don't know 
about what's going on. Exactly. Everyone just says meme it, put it in the internet for two days for get some likes. Forget about it. Let's see what uh, some celebrity is doing, which is honestly very dangerous, especially taking into consideration this incident could actually add for more military deployment in Taiwan Strait. Yeah. And this is showing that they are becoming bolder, the Chinese. They're being more aggressive. They're showing we can do whatever you want in, in, in your airspace and you're going to be just divided over. And people might say, well, it's a balloon. Who cares? But it's still it's huge. Lindsay was saying it was gigantic. There was reports that it was a miles long debris you know, debris field that fell. That's that's gigantic. That's, that's a large piece of equipment that apparently followed a really specific route over military bases across the country. Yeah, that's why I brought up the strategic Panama yeah. Canal. That yeah. is a, that is pretty much what keeps the U.S. control of the Pacific and the Atlantic. Why are they, you know, very close? Yeah, to and us. even though we don't we don't own the canal today, it's still you know a very important choke point in the Western Hemisphere. So there's there's that instance of. Okay, they're clearly doing something. And I think the answer is not to stoop to their level. The answer is not to send our own balloons. But I think, and this is what's really interesting. It's how domestic, like our politicians really dictate our view of China rather than diplomats or people who are more advisors in terms of foreign policy. Like the role of Congress, like I was reading this quote by uh, Evan Medeiros, who's from Georgetown. He was a senior Asia director for Obama. And he said the episode really underscored this idea of the role Congress plays and how we view China and how we actually influence what the administration does. Because imagine, like, let's say, let's say this was actually, say it was found on Wednesday, right? It's two, it's, you know, two days before Friday. The calls to shoot it down would have been a chorus. By Friday, he might have shot it down over the continent. That's that's what's telling the fact that if it was just two days earlier, the Biden would have probably been really. And see, here's the thing. It would come from a very specific subset of politicians and constituents, because clearly, as Lindsay has demonstrated, there are not a lot of people who really care about this at all. They're like, oh, balloon. That's funny. You know, I'd argue that Will Smith slapping Chris Rock made bigger headlines to some people than this balloon actually to most people who are under the age of 30 because let's face it that slap was one of the most incredible things we will ever see in our entire lives but so is this balloon this is the u2 crisis in 2023 what is up Lindsay? i mean we talked about the will smith chris rock slap um for about three weeks in one of my classes here uh, and i don't think we're gonna talk about any chinese spy balloons well, did you say it was the u2 2023? no there was a the u2 uh incident in the cold war where we flew okay. jets over no you know, no you know what i was thought i thought you meant when u2 the band downloaded their album on everyone's phones no, no. in the early 2000s i know people have a grudge about that but ser- but i mean i mean i mean as i as i said that slap it, it goes down in history because it's just like so jarring but people don't appreciate it in the same manner with this balloon what's up hannah also, with the Chris Rock stuff, it was everyone was watching that too. Like more people, and everyone about, saw it immediately after it happened because it was right. on social media. Yeah. Exactly, like people were watching it. it. I think what happened is that someone in Australia or like other countries it didn't get cut out, so then people are immediately posting about it. But when we found out about this, like no one was posting about it, so it didn't reach as many people. And if they were posting about it, it was more like for humor, and it just. 
versus the Will Smith stuff, like we were like, this is crazy, this is an okay, rather than really making fun of it. Yeah. We made fun of it later, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. but not right away. Yeah. And if you're just tuning in, 55 past the hour on the Hofstra when you wake up called Danny, Lindsay, Bruno, and Hannah talking about this Chinese spy balloon. I actually, I told you guys, I originally had plans to do song breaks during the segment, but we've just been on such a roll. We've just been, we've been, you know, keeping this conversation afloat, get it? Because, you know, the balloon, <laughs> uh, that we're, we're, we don't even need the songs. I was going to play Gonna Fly Now, because, you know, the balloon's flying, or it was. It was. You know, maybe it'll make no. a great comeback like Rocky did. It'll yeah. come back. <laughs> but in terms of my final kind of thoughts on this, Tensions are obviously going to remain high between the U.S. and China, even if people don't really want to admit that. The president cannot control when the balloon shows up. He can control how and when he reacts. And he gets he gets a C from me. You know, obviously he waited until it was over the ocean, so that didn't hurt anybody. That's fine. But we just let it we just let it sit there, you know. And I get it. It's different times from back in the day where you probably would have shot it down on it on site. But we don't want to be this society that patrols our airspace like a war zone, like a demilitarized zone. But at the same time, you have to be firm. And Rubio's words, it's easy to just look at them as a, a symptom of the timing. But he is alluding to something that Biden didn't react soon enough. And it's almost a coincidence that China flew this over right before the State of the Union, right before Antony Blinken went to China. It, did they intentionally sabotage U.S.-Chinese relations, uh, Beijing? I, I'm not sure. I don't know what the end game of that would be. Bruno, do you have any thoughts about why they would do this? I'd say, I want two final remarks before we cut off the story. But like my first thing is that remember that something. China needs to justify itself for its strength. In other words, to my people, I need to say that I'm still very much the stronger power. I'm winning out in the U.S. Therefore, the CCP is legitimate because they still have been having... Problems with COVID, as 80% of their population was infected during the Chinese New Year. They were having the protests uh, a couple of months back. They were also having problems with a lot of e economic uh, aspects due to the still post-COVID recovery that they were having as well. So they do need to justify themselves to their people that, you know, we're still on top of things. If not, they're going to start losing control and start any protests. But my more important remark is that, as you were saying, Danny, people need to be on top of this, but for one reason. Because if we're not on top of things, and things start to escalate more and more and more, we're going to see a series of dominoes. These dominoes tend to lead to catastrophe. Yeah, like first it's a balloon, mm -hmm. then it's a jet, then it's the... And it's it's easy to get caught up in that, but there has to be a legitimate fear of that happening. You don't want to be thinking every dom everything's a domino, but there has to be some sort of contingency plan to prevent you from being hit with other aircraft in our space exactly i'm not saying that this is a domino specifically of course this can still be brushed under the rug if we manage to just talk and talk it out but if we're not prepared for the future and there's bigger and worse incidents let's say in the taiwanese strait or over by our pacific holdings what well, where does it stop do we just end up in an incident that might trigger war and because no one was on top of it in the u.s mainland especially in a population like saying hey we should de-escalate we should try to talk it out we just end up in a catastrophe. So I, I strongly urge our generation to get on top of international affairs. For sure. Uh, you guys have a minute. Any final quick thoughts from either Hannah or Lindsay? Mm -mm. No? No thoughts. No thoughts. Well, you know, certainly a lot of hot air with this story. And we'll probably be hearing more about it in the coming days, especially during the State of the Union on Tuesday night.
But that'll do it for our first hour here on the Morning Wake Up Call. Plenty still to go. We still have two interviews in the second hour. We're going to talk about the Grammys. We're going to talk about we're going to, we're going to talk about uh, a woman who you know was miraculously alive in a funeral home. You know, it's going to be a great time. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 WRHU. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio. WRHU. Hempstead. You discovered. You discovered. A cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. WRHU. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Thank you for joining us here on 88.7 Radio Hofstra University. We're in hour two of today's Winnie Wickham Call, where we are talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. Danny, Lindsay, Bruno, Hannah, and Mikey in this second hour. Lindsay breaks down the Grammys. We speak to the Atlantic's Megan Garber about how much entertainment is in the world. And we'll hear from the one and only Grace Valentine on how to deal with college in the new semester. Do not turn that dial or close your tab. Well, hour two, Lindsay. I want to. I want to go to you first because you know, usually from what I've heard, there's a there's a second wind when you do the second hour. How are you feeling now at eight o'clock a.m.? She's giving me a look that I cannot even describe <laughs> right now, everybody. I know you can't see it because it's radio, but but yeah. All right. So I am indeed talking about the Grammys. The award show happened last night. Um, and before I start, Danny, I have to, you know what, maybe I am getting my second win because entertainment is my favorite thing to do, so thank you. Yeah, well, well we're not going to get to the Grammys yet. We still have a lot to oh. get to uh, first, so don't don't jump the gun. Don't, you know, You're don't. getting me excited for no reason. I, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, okay? I just, I was, that's te- what you do. You, te- you tease, you tease the audience. I, that, that was the whole, that was the whole impetus of that, of that no, start. Get right into it. All right, well, we're not, well, we're not going to get right into it because we're going to, just going to take a break. Mikey's here. Mikey Dent, how are you this morning? Welcome to the show. Filling in for uh, filling in for Gigi. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, very tired. I have a class right after this. That oh. I'm not excited for. Look at this guy, trooper, coming in, <laughs> coming in to help us out in our hour of need. You know, this is not the hero we asked for. It's the hero we deserve. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we have plenty to get to uh, in this hour. As I mentioned in the in the teaser, Lindsay. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to start with some more headlines. This time we're going to take a little bit more of a local angle. Uh, so, and I'll take them again because we got some we got some good ones. So, and without further ado, it's not what's going on in the world. It's what's going on in the greater Long Island, New York City area. So, let's do it. So, 
The battle of Long Island between Hofstra and Stony Brook men's basketball ended with a win for the Pride in the dominant 79-58 victory on Saturday. Tyler Thomas scored 29 to lead Hofstra to their 17th win of the year and their 10th win in the Colonial Athletic Association. Coach Colin Curtin said they're the team that's being hunted. That hunt failed today. The Hofstra Pride with a victory 79-78 over the Stony Brook Seawolves, and the celebration is on in Hempstead, New York. That is Jack Lydon on the final call. He called the game alongside Michelle Rabinovich. As if George Santos hasn't been in enough controversies, the pers a prospective staffer of his has accused him of sexual harassment. The man, Derek Myers, claimed Santos touched his leg and groin inappropriately while the two were in his office. He filed a police report and sent the letter to the House Ethics Committee. And in some surprising but awesome news, Riverhead cracked the list of the annual Forbes list of best places to travel. The magazine said the town is a, quote, historic part of the North Shore. Maybe next year, Hamptons. Maybe next year. That'll do it for our local headlines. Uh, Riverhead, that made, some, that made some news. I was shocked. You know, usually you think, oh, Long Island. You know, I, I didn't even know what Riverhead was until yesterday. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> I'm so, what? I'm being honest. Like I've I've heard the name. I've heard the name, but I didn't know where it was. I didn't know what it stood for. I didn't know. There's a duck building. Did you hear about this? It's a 20 foot tall. Yes, I know about the duck. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow. Wow. I guess I'm the only one who's out of the loop. Dude, I don't even know that there was a riverhead here. I barely know where Garden City is. Yeah. Well. <laughs> hey, man. Me neither. But welcome to the club, I guess. Do you want Do you want to touch on the duck really quickly? The Lindsay? big duck. Yeah, the big duck. The big duck is a Long Island staple. It's been there since I believe the 1930s. Um, it's just a large duck that's all you can say it's it's a duck you can walk in there's a little shop in there they decorate it for christmas it's so, great so you're telling me during the during the great depression the great let depression me, let me fact check we, myself we, we they built a giant that that's what they did that's what Everybody they said I'm, I'm fact checking myself guys you hold know, on i can imagine that town hall meeting it feels more like a me and the boys moment this yeah it's got like drunk it's and like everyone everyone we're all we're out of money but we have just enough to build a 20 foot tall duck all in favor say aye I. That's what they did. <laughs> All right. The the Big Duck. I was right. The Big Duck is a building in the shape of a duck located in Flanders, New York on Long Island. Originally built in 1931. Oh so, the, yes. So that they built it during the Depression. It was built by duck farmer Martin Maurer in Riverhead and used as a shop to sell ducks and duck eggs. All right. That's incredible. But we have, we have so much to get to in so little time. So quickly, uh, before we move on, we got weather with... Uh, Hannah Vincent, again, to reiterate for all listeners who are tuning at the hour, what's the weather like, Hannah? It is currently 36 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra, and up in the sky it is still cloudy, but the rest of the day should just be partly cloudy as the sun will peak out, with an expected high of 49 degrees during the day and a low of 28 in the evening. Thank you so much. My, my, my mentee, everybody. She's come so far. <laughs> Uh, okay, but now, Lindsay, we can get to the Grammys. Ah, oh, the Grammys. Uh, and we have, and as I mentioned to you earlier in the show, we have we have reactions from a few of the winners. So please, whenever you're ready, let's go. I'm going to start breaking down how I first found the story, which was last night, uh, discovering that Beyonce could have become the most decorated Grammy winner in all of history, and we'll circle back to that later. Yes, yes. Um... Bad Bunny was up for making history as well, but unfortunately he was unable to secure that award. Um, but it surprises me that it's 2023, and if he won, that would have been the first Spanish language album mm -hmm. I could have won, because uh, I feel like it's 2023. Um, but here we are. Uh, 
But some of the categories uh, that Beyonce was nominated for, she was nominated for nine in total. So definitely there was a, a huge chance to secure this uh, title. Um, I, I listed some of the ones that I, I knew of, some of the ones I knew more songs in, more artists in, and I gave my prediction. So we're going to see how that went. So album of the year was 30 Adele, Voyage ABBA, uh, Bad Bunny's album, I'm sorry if I butcher this, uh, Un Verano Senti, uh, Renaissance by Beyonce, Good Morning Gorgeous by Mary J. Blige, In These Silent Days by Brandi Carlisle, Music of the Spheres by Coldplay, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers by Kedrick Lamar, uh, Special by Lizzo, and Harry's House by Harry Styles. Now, I thought this one was going to go to Beyonce. But does anyone want to guess who it went to if you didn't catch the Grammys? Harry Styles. It did indeed go to Harry <laughs> Styles. Harry Styles won Album of the Year for Harry's House. Uh, now back to Record of the Year. Whoa, we're just going to skip. We're not going to let Harry have his Oh, you're going to let Harry have his notes? Yeah, okay, yeah here's, Harry here's Harry Styles. You know, when we get in the studio and, and begin a record, we just make the music that we want to make. And I think it's feels really nice to feel like, oh, that is the right thing to do now you can move on now yeah. i can move you on you gotta let harry speak i gotta let harry speak you know we're going back to record of the year now which actually has a lot of the same artists that were in uh album of the year so you have abba adele beyonce mary j blige brandy carlisle uh kendrick lamar lizzo and harry styles but you also added in doja cat with her song woman and steve lacy with bad habit uh this one was a little harder for me to predict because i all felt that uh Ease on Me, Bad Habit, As It Was, Break My Soul, and Liz's song were really, really good for records of the year. Uh, but it went to Lizzo. Um, and we have Lizzo, too. You want to hear Lizzo? Absolutely, I want to okay, hear Lizzo. this is Lizzo. I'd like to believe that not only can people do good, but we just are good. We are good, inherently. So, do you agree with that? Are we all good, inherently? Uh, No. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was quick. <laughs> On to Song of the Year. Uh, this is my last little prediction one that I had. We had A, B, C, D, E, F, U by Gail. Oh, that is Wait, a terrible it's song. It's a terrible <laughs> song. Um, just, just I'm glad. Everything I'm, wrong with modern music. So it's, it's one of those uh, alphabet or nursery rhyme songs. Um, and then we had... Uh, Am I allowed to say the full title of the Lizzo song? No. Okay. Um, ADT. ADT by Lizzo. All Too Well, 10-minute version of the short film. That's the whole title. It was on there by Taylor Swift. As it was, Harry Styles, Bad Habits, Steve Lacey, Break My Soul, Beyonce, Ease On Me, Adele, God Did by DJ Khaled, The Heart Part, Kendrick Lamar, and Just Like That by Bonnie Raitt. And yeah, I, and I we, thought this one was going to go to Harry Styles because I felt that As It Was was a song that really defined 2022, especially after it came out. Like, I feel like that song was everywhere. However, it went to Bonnie Raitt. And Bonnie Raitt, I think she's 73 years old. She's 73 years old? She. I'm trying to find, because I had it up on the on my computer. Okay, now it. now it's just gone. So that's just fantastic. Yeah, she is 73, 73, 73. and she is a blues rock slide yeah. guitarist. Yeah, so let's hear from let's let's hear from Bonnie. To be 73 years old and get a song of the year for my songwriting when I'm barely a songwriter is just after 5 decades and I just I don't I do it cuz I love it, but I I'm so lucky to still get to do this for a living and my fans are so loyal. You know, go figure. She mentioned it in the cut how old how old she was. So that's yeah. just that's just fantastic. But, uh, but before we move on, we got to talk about the newest EGOT, 
Viola Davis. Oh, yes, yes. I'm going through some other readers, but Viola Davis did secure her EGOT status. With which a book. Is Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, and... Tonys. Tonys. So with a audiobook uh, narration for the book Finding Me. And this is uh, Viola talking about said book. I wrote this book to honor the six-year-old Viola, to honor her, her life, her joy, her trauma, everything. And it has just been such a journey. I just EGOT. That's a verb? You can EGOT? I thought it was you, you, you are an EGOT. And uh, now I was I was going to go talk about Kendrick Lamar winning best rap performance, but I realized I was so tired this morning, I put it in as Lamar Kendrick. <laughs> Lamar Kendrick. <laughs> <laughs> but Kendrick Lamar did win best rap performance with The Heart Part 5. All right. So let's hear Kendrick. Here's, here's Kendrick. As artists, you know, we all entertain and stupid, you know, and we say things to provoke thoughts and, and feelings and emotions. So making this record, this is one of my toughest records to make. And it allowed me to do that and allowed me to share other people's experiences. All right. And I think uh, I have one more point to make. Yeah. Is it about Beyonce? Oh, yes. We're circling back to the beginning of did Beyonce win the status of the most decorated Grammy winner in history? The answer is yes. She did. She won Best Dance Electronic Recording, Best Dance Electronic Music Album, Best R&B Song with Cuff It, and Best R&B Performance with Plastic Off the Sofa, meaning that she has secured the title of Most Decorated Winner. And that title was previously secured back in 1997, I believe. So it has been a while. And so I think we have Beyonce right now. Let's hear if we have the Queen Bee. No, we do not. That's unfortunate. Well, okay. Um... I was kidding. We didn't actually have her. Uh, I was just playing. I was messing oh, with y'all. Danny. Uh, I always, gonna, always. I, a, thought, I thought she was going to walk through all, the door. Always a jokester. You know what's funny, though? I'll tell you this story. Yesterday, I was at, I had to go to work, and I had to get my onboarding stuff finished, and the HR rep was named Rihanna. So I texted my girlfriend. and said, oh, I met Rihanna today, and she actually believed it. She's like, oh, my God, you met Rihanna? You didn't get a picture? And then I said, I think you're a little confused. I met, I met the HR rep, Rihanna. Did you mean Rihanna, like the performer? And I got hung up on basically. So, okay. um, good job. Dan. But thank you so much for that um, that Grammy breakdown. Were you? I, I would. You, I some of the results you said probably were a little shocking to you, right? They were definitely. Um, I mean, I love Harry Styles, but that I think that Harry's house was album of the year. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was his best. I thought Fine Line is definitely his best album, um, but. Here we are. Here we are indeed. Um, it's 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 always weird because by the time the Grammys come out, it's almost like you forget the songs. Like as it was was as you mentioned a phenomenon. Does anyone is everyone else in here agree with that? Was as it was a phenomenon? Absolutely. Am I allowed to hum that? Do we have the rights to that? Uh, I don't. I don't think we have. The I don't think we have. The, it's so okay. I'm not, I'm not even gonna hum it. It's okay. What about Hannah? Where I know you're a entertainment person. I am. I was really excited to see all the Lizzo stuff because I'm from Minnesota. Lizzo said one of the best decisions of her life was moving to Minneapolis. So anytime she gets anything, I like celebrate as a Minnesotan. Oh, of course. Very nice. What about you, Bruno? No, the one that I didn't expect to be there was Bad Bunny. For me, he's like the mumble rap of Latin America. Just no. Why couldn't it be anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> Bruno, not a bad bunny fan. Got not it. Not a bad I get bunny hate for it all the time fan. from a lot of girls, but like 
I'm sorry. He's just mumble rap in mumble Spanish. rap. Yeah, it is what it is, man. Ozzy Osbourne won a won a Grammy last night. For what? Or no, this is 2022. Wait, yeah, no, this was the 2022 Grammy Awards. For oh, I'm so confused and tired. Uh, but no, Ozzy Osbourne won Best Rock Album. Congrats. Deserved. Congrats to congrats to Ozzy. Um, so yeah, well, thank you, thank you for breaking that down. Was that was that all of your expectations for how it would go? Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, I haven't really started. I haven't really tuned into award shows. Did you? Did you watch it? I could not. I was finishing schoolwork last night, so I was trying to be a good student. <sighs> I did. Congrats! I did. It's awesome. Everyone, give <laughs> Lindsay a round of applause. I uh, thank you. I did finish my assignments. You're a student. Student report. You're a student radio person. Student first. It's like student athlete. Student broadcaster. Student, I guess. Student, yeah. student broadcaster. Student goes before broadcaster. But yeah, I did. I did see videos of Taylor Swift on the Glambot red carpet, though. I did see that I as well. I saw that. I did see it as and well. And she didn't announce uh, Speak Now Taylor's version, so. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of Swifties are waiting for that one. I know Amelia Sack is devastated. Former Monday Morning Show veteran. Oh yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't watch them either. I really don't care much for award shows at all. I think they are. I think they are cool, though. I think especially if you're a huge fan of an artist, and I'm really not a fan of any artist to a certain degree, they're in a great time. Plus, everyone kind of knows who's going to win. I mean, the way at least everyone has a good idea of who is the contender. I mean, some of the some of the um, categories, Lindsay, you listed, I think, a good 10 or so artists and songs. And meanwhile, you really limited it to just two people who are really in the running. Yeah, because you... you you expect the people, it's like name recognition. The bigger artists you expect to win, but there are so many other artists that you don't usually think of, like Mary J. Blige and Brandi Carlisle being nominated for Album of the Year, Song of the Year, Record of the Year, is, and apparently Bonnie Raitt as well. Like these are older musicians that you don't necessarily think would be up for these kinds of awards, like the big hitters, yeah. um, Especially Gail go, for ABCDFU. Go, 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 boom, go boomers. Uh, go so. boomers. Yep. <laughs> uh, but some of these you forget about as well, like DJ, DJ Khaled. I forgot about him. Um, another one. Another one. <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting to see who wins, who gets nominated, because some of the people you're like, I have never heard of them, and other people you're like, why are they nominated? It's definitely going to go to this person. But I guess you can't always tell what the Academy is going to do. They have proven themselves not predictable. You can never do that. Well, that'll do it for our Grammy coverage. Uh, when we come back from this short break, uh, interview with Megan Garber from The Atlantic. But first, here's a song I think will definitely be in the running for a Grammy next year, and that's Kill Bill. Okay, so I, I have to admit, I love this song, but I, is it, how do you say the artist's name? S-Z-A? SZA. SZA. That's, that's how you say it? SZA. Okay, because I've heard it, but I didn't really associate it with with that, okay. So, Kill Bill by SZA. I think that's definitely that's definitely be a Grammy song next year, right? It definitely should be. Definitely yeah. should be. All right. So, Kill Bill by SZA here on eighty-eight point seven FM WRHU. Don't go anywhere. And that was Kill Bill by SZA. I'm being told here on eighty-eight seven WRHU. We are twenty-one past the hour, and now we will welcome Mikey Dent to the stage to talk about what's been going on with Netflix. I know a lot of people are up in arms about. What's going on with them, especially with the password thing? So, Mikey, you have you have the floor. You are ready to roll. What is going on with the original 
original streaming service. After a successful trial in Latin America, Netflix will bring its plan to end password sharing to the United States next month. Netflix has been quiet as to what the details of the plan would be, though there was a bit of indication earlier this week. Earlier in the week, the company announced on a frequently asked questions page that any user watching from an account's non-primary location could be sent a code to verify the account. The code could be of use for seven days in case a user is traveling. The page, however, was later removed, as were the details. There was a time when Netflix loved its users to share passwords. It was viewed as a marketing technique that HBO's former chief executive called, quote, terrific marketing vehicle for the next generation of viewers. That philosophy has become one of the past. As if Netflix couldn't crack down enough on password sharing, there are additional concerns that they may, keyword is may, implement policy to prevent parents from sharing their password with their kids in college. A CNBC article said, quote, college students often don't change their permanent address until after they graduate. Even two analysts who follow Netflix acknowledge that their college-age children are piggybacking on the family Netflix account for now. Netflix has over 230 million subscribers, allowing for billions in revenue each year. Many are left to speculate if that will change in 2023 with its new policy. Students at Hofstra University don't escape the matter unscathed either. Many are going to be impacting, including a junior named Diana. I go to college and I'm not going to be able to go home to log into Netflix every month. On the other hand, some students are under the impression that they will not be impacted, or at least not as much. A senior Hofstra said he expects Netflix to return to its old ways sooner rather than later. Microsoft tried to do the same thing. They tried to implement a system where you can't buy used games. But there was such a public outcry and people hated that initiative where they just they took that concept back and now you can buy used games again. So the way I look at it is they're going to implement it, sure, but there's going to be such a large public outcry about it that they're just going to have to go back. They're going to revert back to how Netflix used to be. This is an ongoing and controversial story with much more to come. For Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, I'm Michael Dent. Thank you so much. And I do remember that shared games thing. That had so many people ready to raise the pitchforks and torches. Because you can't you can't police this. How are you going to stop people from sharing passwords? I, I, now, I've seen how this is done in other areas. For example, Adobe Audition recognizes when you've signed in on more than one device. When I... Thanks, thanks. Uh, I, keep the music down, please. Uh, <laughs> I, it was going to play me out. I remember, I remember when I tried to get my, my audition that I had through my internship on my personal computer, and it said you have two devices logged on. That is the maximum. Is that what they're going to do? And I don't know the specifics, but is that what they're going to do? They're going to track how many devices you signed in on? Because that their te the technology for that exists. Hannah Vincent, please. You yeah. raise your hand in the back of the class. <laughs> um, my family uses YouTube TV instead of cable. And there is a thing where you can only have three users on it at once. And so I watch The Bachelor every week. And before we changed to YouTube TV, I would use my sister's boyfriend's account to watch um, recorded episodes of The Bachelor, but if 
and he's sharing YouTube TV with some friends. So if they're watching something, I would have to leave because you can only have three devices. And so I convinced my parents to make the cable switch, which we really like. And since my sister uses her boyfriends, it's just me and my parents on YouTube TV. So it works out really nicely. So I know there is a way that you can kind of limit the amount of people watching. Well, Netflix has that too, or at least they used to, where it used to be only two people could be watching at the same time. I don't know if it was on one account or over all the accounts that are shared on that Netflix. But it was really sad to see when I tried to go watch Netflix and it would pop up. I use my aunt's Netflix. I have not paid for Netflix since 2016. Just saying that right now. You know, I don't plan on paying You're the Netflix. reason why, Lindsay, they're doing this. Well, maybe they should actually Money make... lauderers like listen, you. Listen, maybe Netflix should make good original movies or shows that people actually want to watch. The only good things, like really truly good thing on Netflix right now is Ginny and Georgia. Their original movies aren't great. The original shows usually aren't amazing. They cancel a lot of their shows, actually. Uh, Bridgerton? Is Bridgerton a Netflix original? Stranger Things? Right, but it's on Netflix. Stranger Things. Oh, La- Lady Hill, how dare you say I'm such a thing about Bridgerton? About, I'm talking about things that are currently out, like things it's that have there. recently come out. Okay, but it's still there. Bridgerton's at least a year old. Stranger season- Things is also at least a year old, almost. 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 It was like over the summer. summer. Yeah. But they don't have enough hits, I don't think. I mean, they're getting rid of a, a lot of their shows that they had that were hits, like Friends, um, Because they, the go to, they go to the other streaming services. Yeah. And people like to go there. And Netflix doesn't have... Just, just don't have great original things. They're good. They're okay. They're sometimes watchable. They're not great. What would yeah. help with that would be though increasing revenue so they can get the rights to more movies, which is what they're trying to do. Well, maybe it's just too late for Netflix. <laughs> no, no, it's, just, it's not about revenue only. Like I, I saw there's like an analyst from I don't remember if it was CNN or if it was NBC, but he was saying Netflix should adopt the strategy that HBO does. That's why people, because people tend to like buy the subscription for like a month, binge whatever they want, especially if it's a new show, and then just leave. But at HBO, what they do is, you know, every week they release a new episode for a new series. That's kind of like what keeps their hits revel- relevant. Because even if they get more revenue, like uh, Mikey's saying, if you're still going to be either just pumping out all in one go and then everyone just leaves after that, or just making mediocre content, having more revenue is not going to help. Especially if you're, you know, angering your audience. What do you think, yeah, Danny? No, I think that's I think that's very fair. It's going to be interesting. I, I heard they leaked it, apparently, and there's going to be so much backlash to this that I think it'll really it really seize to the fore of what they're trying to do and it might hurt them in the long run because people will just be like well if Netflix is going to crack down on this and I don't even worry about it what's up Lindsay uh, someone pulled up a tweet from Netflix from I think 2017 where they tweeted uh, password sharing is my love language so yeah plus it's such an important part of our cultural parlance you know there's always the idea of oh you broke up with this person well time to take my netflix account back or change my netflix password right because your ex is going to be using your netflix account i mean i recently had to get my own disney plus <laughs> oof, oof <laughs> that was oof. upsetting it's i dark. was like i just want to watch marvel movies and star wars please <laughs> <laughs> oh there you go but uh thank you so much mikey for that report and we're gonna go from one report to the other because uh and, oh megan's actually here so we're gonna we're going to welcome Megan Garber onto the show. Then we're going to go 
to Hannah Vincent, and then we have one final interview. So joining us now is Megan Garber of The Atlantic. She wrote an article that talks about entertainment in our culture and how there's too much of it. Uh, so we're going to let Megan come into the Zoom right now. Uh, there. Hi, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay, Megan. How are you this morning? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. We just introduced you. We just introduced uh, your article. And I think we just, just jump right in to the, the interview. So you write in your article, we've lost the plot, that dystopias, and you take a very dystopic tone throughout, is you, write, <laughs> you write, quote, amusement in their skewed worlds becomes a means of captivity rather than escape. So what? where are you seeing that type of entertainment in our culture and lives today? We just talked a lot about Netflix and password sharing, but I want to jump to what the content itself, how is the flood of content we get on streaming services, on social media, on television, kind of blurring the line between escape and captivity. Yeah. So one of the things I think a lot about is uh, TV shows, um, for example, like The Dropout, uh, which is sort of a retelling of the Theranos story um, with Elizabeth Holmes um, in these terms that are a little bit fictional, but a little bit true as well. You have shows like you said on Netflix um, called Inventing Anna, which is about um, Anna Sorokin, who was a scammer in real life. She went to prison for fraud, um, but retold in these very sort of fictional terms and I think shows like that really do blur the line because you never quite know you know did that thing happen or uh, is it um, <laughs> is it a little bit fictional you have that in the crown as well um, you know these shows that just don't uh, really make clear what the terms are between fact and fiction now when it comes to the content we consume on TV the internet social media and so on what is it about the constant invitation to be entertained that kind of divorces us from reality? I think, you know, if we expect the world to be entertaining, um, that is going to make us have unrealistic expectations of, of the world itself. Um, I think that, you know, in politics, we see this often where, you know, um, policy discussions that are matters of often life and death are um, sometimes just treated as boring. Um, you know, we have, let's see, I'm trying to think of other examples, so many of them, um, you know, throughout, I think, our political discourse, basically, um, when entertainment is sort of the ethic that is expected, when we expect our world and our conversations to be entertaining, that really does skew everything else. Um, and it's it's there in politics, it's there in culture. Um, you know, it's there also, I would say, in our um, expectations about each other. I think social media in certain ways, um, you know, turns us into objects of entertainment to each other. And that can sometimes be fine. Sometimes that's absolutely fine. But sometimes that can be a really bad thing as well. And if you're just tuning in, you're, we're here talking with Megan Garber of The Atlantic about her article, We've Lost the Plot, which deals with the abundance of entertainment we encounter in our daily lives. Now, in your article, uh, Megan, you bring up the request given to Abbott Elementary creator uh, Quinta Brunson, yeah. how she was requested by a fan to do a school shooting plot line right after Uvalde. You know, what does that example, among the others that you mentioned, say about the blend of specifically news especially news like school shooting and entertainment that we consume. Yes, I think so often we are accustomed to um, not even processing news, um, except as anything but entertainment. So, um, you know, 
we see these uh, news stories play out and very often we will, you know, a week later, two weeks later, get an announcement that uh, those news stories are being turned into television shows, um, you know, when there are um, disasters, um, you know, that get a lot of attention. I think a lot of times people don't really process those in the moment and just sort of think, you know what, it, it might be um, it will very likely, in fact, be a, a documentary later on. Um, so things like that where we just, I think, overall become a little bit incapable of processing tragedies in the moment. Um, and we sort of expect that they are going to be translated into a form of entertainment that, you know, makes them less um tragic at least seem that way that makes them more cathartic for us and and i think again it kind of skews our sense of 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 what the news of the world actually is and miss garber you alluded to this earlier but these this idea of main character energy has emerged mm. as a common turn of phrase but being a performer is as you say more and more a part of our daily lives can yeah. you expand on how you feel about this idea yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, social media and all of the, the things that it brings with it, um, you know, can be really wonderful. It, it gives people voices when they didn't have them often before. It, it allows people to share their ideas with each other and allows for community. But I would also say that the flip side of that can be that social media, I think, conditions us to think of ourselves as performers, to um you know, to to just um, ev everything in a, in a way can just become a performance. And and I think that, um, you know, there are these notions in, um, you know, in, in cultural studies about sort of performing selves, where we come to approach the world in general as a performance. And again, start to see each other, just like you said, as as main characters, as people who are performing for each other. And, and I think the, you know, the negative side of that can be this idea that we can dismiss each other as human beings, that we can dismiss each other as, as full humans and um, can just simply, you know, treat each other as people um, who are not really people at all. And and one more thing, um, how do you think entertainment will impact our democracy and our governments going forward? I think um, it can be a very bad impact because, um, you know, when we condition ourselves to accept that politics should be entertaining above all, um, you know, we get um, politicians who aren't always qualified for office, who aren't always qualified to make these very important decisions that require knowledge and wisdom and, you know, a certain approach to the world, um, you know, that is not about entertainment. That's about keeping us safe. That's about honoring people. That's about, um, you know, ensuring that, um, that people's lives are as good as they can be. And, um, you know, when we think about just, you know, politicians who can make good scenes, politicians who can, um, you know, have good jokes on Twitter, those things don't really matter, I would argue, um, you know, um, but politicians who have a certain wisdom um, that can often sometimes seem a little bit boring <laughs> to people because that, you know, wisdom is something that happens kind of behind the scenes. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, when we prioritize the entertainment, it can A, get us politicians who are not really operating always um, in our 
in our favor and in our best interest. But I think it can also distract us from the things that really matter, the things that we should be looking at and paying attention to. And when we think about just the daily mandate uh, for fun, that can be um, that can be kind of overridden. <laughs> um, you know, all the important things can be overridden when we just allow ourselves to be distracted and to think about distraction as the, the primary mandate. And before we let you go, Megan, what what inspired you to write this piece? You know, it's all of the questions that you just asked are actually what inspired me. Um, I, I've been, you know, on social media for a long time and sort of noticed these these um, trends and these ideas for a while. Um, one thing that helped solidify it for me was um, uh, following a trend on TikTok where um, people would ask their Amazon delivery people um, who are being recorded through Ring uh, video cameras to do dances for them before they dropped off their packages and. You know, the drivers, for the most part, had very little choice about whether to do dances for these cameras um, because uh, they are rated by customers and the customers had the power to give them a very bad rating if they didn't do what they said. So um, and I watched these people doing these dances um, and effectively being turned into someone else's entertainment. And something about that just felt so kind of. Um, wrong to me and so dystopian actually in its way and and that helped to crystallize things for me a lot you know this this fact of you know one person becoming another person's entertainment without having a real say in the matter and I think we see versions of this all throughout our society all throughout our culture 100 percent and once again that was Megan Garber from the Atlantic we discussed her article for the March 2023 issue of the publication titled We've Lost the Plot, which dives into the abundance of entertainment we encounter every day. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. No problem. Well, we'll be back in a second. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM WRHU. Jason Derulo, what you say here on the morning wake-up call, 88.7 FM, WRHU, Danny, Lindsay, Bruno, and Hannah. Lindsay knew all the words. I did know a lot of the she words, She knew actually. all <laughs> the words. I was very impressed. And I, I, I saw you jamming out, Hannah. I saw you jamming out. Of course. I love that song. Yeah, it's it's a good song. Uh, I believe the uh, the original song that he sampled was Imogene Heap's uh, Hide and Seek. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a really good and haunting song if you listen to it. Uh, but Jason Derulo turned it into a banger. Oh, he, he <laughs> Jason he Derulo def- really turned he, that song into a banger. He definitely did. And we're going to stay on the topic of music, but not necessarily good music, but a a problematic musician. And we're going to turn to Hannah Vincent for that report. So without further ado, Hannah, please walk us through. And I know it's about Nick Carter. I'm very aware. It's about Nick Carter. You got it. So let's go. Last December, Shannon Ruth accused Backstreet Boys band member Nick Carter of raping and transmitting HPV to her in 2001 after a concert. Ruth claims that she stayed after a concert in Tacoma, Washington, and Carter invited her into the band's tour bus where he gave her a red drink he called VIP juice, which he claims was just cranberry juice, but Ruth believes there was alcohol in it. The last 21 years have been filled with pain, confusion, frustration, shame, and self-harm. 
This is not the first time Carter has been accused of rape. In 2017, Melissa Schumann accused Carter of raping her in the 2000s in his apartment while drunk. But Carter says it was com completely consensual and that she is actually being groomed by her father to try and take down Carter. However, Schumann was never able to sue Carter due to the statutes of limitation being expired. Carter now believes that Ruth and the Schumans are working together to try and take money from him and that they are just taking advantage of the hashtag MeToo movement. Due to these accusations, the Backstreet Boys have lost over $2.3 million from cancellations of concerts and endorsements. ABC will no longer air its Backstreet Boys holiday special after sexual assault allegations against band member Nick Carter. Carter's team announced the countersue for the exact amount a few days ago. They are suing for this amount to try and get all of the lost money back. Carter has been accused of victim blaming, but his attorney has stated that, quote, protecting one's reputation and name by calling a liar a liar is not vict victim blaming or bullying. It is simply telling the truth, end quote. Carter's team is also accusing Ruth and the Schumans of exploiting Carter's late younger brother, Aaron Carter, saying that they used his distraught mental state and family issues to give, get him to legitimize the accusations. The lawsuit claims that Aaron apologized for his involvement in the scandal and said that the Schumans were liars before his untimely death. Her attorney, Ruth's attorney has stated, quote, why should Nick Carter be believed with his long history of, of abusing females? A jury will weigh the evidence and decide, end quote. Even though I'm autistic and live with cerebral palsy, I believe that nothing has affected me more or had a more lasting impact on my life than what Nick Carter did and said to me. For the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, I'm Hannah Vincent. Thank you so much, Hannah, for that report. Uh, definitely some heavy stuff. You know, is um, is there any are there any updates on that, or it's still waiting true litigation in court? I think there, it's still waiting. Um, his lawyer just came out with that counter to a couple days ago. Got it. Well, this is this will be a developing story. I feel like I haven't really heard much from that group in a while. Uh, the uh, the Backstreet Boys. I have an older sister, so I've been listening to them forever. <laughs> But it, and this gets into the old classic debate: Is it you know you you don't like the artist, but you respect the art? You know, right. that's it gets it gets tricky. Yeah, it it does, and I think it's it it's always comes up every couple of years when you find out your favorite artist has done some pretty messed up stuff. Right. I remember when um, I mean think about Kanye West or R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, you know, so many who have bad reputations but they ultimately you know their music is still still worth listening to just because of the music quality if you're a fan right i will say that my this some, someone i knew back home he got a kanye tattoo and i quote for no reason and i think it's probably one of his least uh i don't know happy decisions because you know that with tattoo did not age well right yeah well now we're going to be moving right along uh, to fortunately we had an interview but it was too long it's too long to play it's 19 minutes we don't have 19 minutes left in the show so we're gonna get right to Lindsay's final story that I think I know she's very excited to get to yes that, that breath was that breath that was a deep breath is a word for it yes um, so this past weekend a woman was pronounced dead at a Suffolk nursing home uh, her time of death was 11.15 a.m. She was transported to a funeral home about two hours away. And uh, after she got there, about a half hour later, she was uh, discovered to be breathing. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you, you got to ask some questions here. Um, how does this happen? How how do you transport a uh, an alive woman to a funeral home? Uh, I have I have some maybe solutions. Did someone not check her pulse? Is she a heavy sleeper? What happened? <laughs> uh, you're 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 expecting me to know? No, I don't know. I, I think the thing that made me laugh more getting ready for the story was your link, Danny, about a similar situation that happened in Iowa, quite literally around the same time, mm-hmm. where another 66 year old woman was transported to <laughs> another funeral home and was found living. Um, so how are nursing homes doing this? Uh, and, and then that Iowa case, the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals fined the special care center that woman was in 10K for, for essentially what happened. That's, that, that's insane. How do you, how do you, how do you reconcile that? How do you, how do you go to the family and say, oh, <laughs> they're alive. They're alive. Oh, like Frankenstein's monster. They're alive. <laughs> It's 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 almost unbelievable. Here's and this is the timeline that really messes with my head because she pronounced dead at eleven fifteen, transported at one thirty, discovered to be breathing at two o nine. Did she have a, a way to breathe? Because if not, how did she survive that long without quote unquote breathing? Yeah. Well, we have to remember one thing. Sometimes the body has done some miraculous things, especially like if there is like a, if the, the heart has slowed down or any other kind of condition like that, it has been done, you know, medically for surgery. So you can actually, if the body can replicate it somehow naturally, it theoretically could be done. Obviously, this should be looked more into. But my biggest point is we actually covered something in Newsline. Lindsay, you were there. I, I'm pretty sure you were there. That how they were actually giving like, um, antipsychotics and and like pronouncing people crazy yeah. in nursing homes. So I think this shows how broken this nursing home system is that to the point that they can pronounce you dead and I, not even check properly. Because if you're just checking for breathing and you said nobody checked their pulse, you know, normally in a hospital that would tr- trigger like you know trying to get her to breathe again if there's still a pulse or at least it's like she's still warm at this point. So I'd say this is something that should really be looked into by uh, several government departments and. Maybe in, in cause for a lawsuit because well you almost killed the person by not doing your job properly. I mean I'm I'm reading more into the uh, Iowa story as well. My apologies, it was last month, not this month. I thought it was still January, um, but it says that after a 12-hour shift was when a staff member declared the woman in Iowa had passed away, um, which also kind of takes into account the long shifts we make nurses and care workers work. Um, you know, mistakes happen mistakes. when you when you work twenty hour days. Mistakes happen, but also the on call hospice nurse was called, as well as the funeral home, and the funeral director arrived and placed the woman in the gurney and zip, zip, zip the bag shut. What? <laughs> Hannah, please. Aren't, aren't talk these... about the talk us through this madness, this please. This sounds like something from a TV show. Like I don't know if any of you guys have seen Arrested Development, but yeah. there's a whole bit with the doctor how he will 
say like he's gone and what they mean is that he's the dad is like missing he he's left missing. not he's dead he's like, like gone he's not in the building it's we lost him and then they're all really upset and they yeah, walk and into like the like, hospital room and the window's just open and he's gone yeah or tobias they go like oh he looks dead and he looks dead they're like no they're he's like, just, just painted blue exactly <laughs> It happens so many times, and this literally sounds like one of those plot lines. This is also my nightmare to be like zipped up in a bag and still breathing. Yeah. Well, did she? Was she aware? Was this woman aware? The well, the Iowa woman actually did end up passing away two days after oh, that this occurred. No. Um. Oh. I that's, the that's I, the Iowa one sounds like more of a miracle than the I I just I don't know how. This happens. I <laughs> I don't know. What does the human body do where they're like, I'm just going to chill. <laughs> but so in that Iowa case, is the, is, is the care center going to be faced with charges over this? It's uh, unsure because they, they still don't know if it was human error. Or if the woman's body just went, so, so, ah, I'm going to start working again. Well, so now, okay, so from the Iowa case, she was living, the woman was living in the facility for dementia, anxiety, and depression. Started in 2021. She was transferred to hospice care in 2022. And she had, quote, senile de- degeneration of the brain. And she got heavy doses of morphine and alprazolam, as I say. Al- Xanax. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. And then... Alprazolam, I think. And then it said she was fine on December 29th, and then she refused food starting on the 30th, and then she just wasn't doing well. And on January 2nd, she had minor seizures, and then on January 3rd, it was, you know, she didn't have a pulse. And then they, and then this is the kicker. This is the kicker. They said the, then it says, quote, they felt the resident had passed away. You gotta be one hundred percent sure there, pal. You cannot have. You have to. Can't rely on a feeling. The guy was like, "Yeah, I'm trusting my gut on this one." No, no, you can't I'm, do that. I'm I'm looking back at the uh, the original article that I found this on, and there have been kind of updates from both the funeral home and uh, and the <laughs> and the nursing home that the Long Island woman was at. Um, or uh, it's more of the. Uh, it's the receptionist at the funeral home said that she knows nothing about the incident. Well, I, I'd expect I'd expect that. Yeah. And a woman who answered the phone at the nursing home declined the comment. And the funeral home that the Long Island woman was transferred to uh, basically declined the comment and said, out of respect for the privacy, they are not in a position to comment further on the matter. Um, it's wow. That sounds suspicious. I, I can't believe, I can't imagine going through the emotions of finding out your loved one has passed away, starting to go through that process, and then like a half hour later, like, mm, they're alive, sorry. They're, <laughs> they're, 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 they're still alive, yeah. No, the Iowa one is really sending me, but at least the one closer to here isn't, and the person's still alive, right? Yeah. Okay, good, good. Um, good. But it's... It's interesting because people go through stages of death after they pass away, and I think you would 
notice these biological changes happening if you just keep an eye on the person. Like, it's it's just, I don't, it's so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something, man, but at least in one instance it was okay. The, the Iowa case sounds like it was, she was going to die anyway, but it was a more of just, it probably accelerated her, her, her passing. But also, you never want to go through that as a family member of that sort of person. No. It's awful. But can we can we end on a lighter note? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, I was told by a personnel director here at RHU, Emily Campbell, to say that she did not like the Grammys. She quote she quote hated it. Thank um, you, Emily Campbell. So thank you, Emily. And um, I mean, how was your first week back, guys? Was it was it was it fun? Was it all that you expected it to be? We'll start with uh, we'll start with Hannah. It was good i i like all my classes i have a really nice schedule i'm very excited for this semester that's good what about you bruno but pretty well though i have to create two tv shows ideas in span of a semester which is gonna be Ooh. hard but i can do it <laughs> yeah and Lindsay, you're uh you're a senior yes yeah, my last you're leaving one us. That's my last i don't one. know if i can handle um, that i have classes on tuesdays and thursdays well that's good that's that <laughs> so no classes today no, I have work and I'm producing Newsline and I'm Woo. doing an Islanders thing. What can we expect on Newsline today? News. About what? Uh, earthquake in Turkey, a uh, scary fire that happened in Ohio that caused thousands to evacuate whoa, their whoa, homes. Whoa, whoa, light notes, light notes, light notes, light, light notes. Light notes, I... Was there, like, was, there, was there like a cat that was a mayor for a day? Something like uh, that? Police <laughs> saved a dog in Ronkonkoma from drowning in a lake this yeah. morning. Let's go. There we go. Hey, all dogs go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven. You're so right. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Man, what a show. <laughs> we didn't even get to all the interviews we were supposed to get to today. It was so jam-packed. It was so jam-packed. Yeah, but I'm glad you enjoyed the first two-hour show for Lindsay. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be back next week. I'm yes, and be back you know, week. hopefully we'll be back at full strength next week with uh, Gigi returning to the fold. Uh, but be sure to listen to the Morning Makeup Call every single day of the week. Again, it's been Danny, Lindsay, Bruno, and Hannah, and guest reporter Mikey. Have a good rest of your Monday. Have a great rest of your week. Be sure to tune in 7 to 9 a.m. every weekday on WRHU for the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. We will hear from you, and you'll hear us next time.